We'll be reading from Jonah, chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, I'm glad that you're all here. Uh, Thank you for being here this morning. It is a pleasure to look at God's word together. Uh, There's a couple of you who are guests who haven't been with us in a while. So we started a series a couple of weeks ago in the uh, Minor Prophets. So we'll be going all the way through from start to finish. Jonah is the oldest of the Minor Prophets. And so we're looking at the book of Jonah. Most of us uh, who have any church background at all know the story of Jonah, at least in part. And uh, today we'll be looking at chapter 3, at least the first nine verses of chapter 3. But as we begin our time here this morning, I want to remind us of two questions that I think are beneficial for us to keep in mind every week as we march through this series. And the the first of the questions is, what, what are we learning about God in the book of Jonah? Certainly, we, we learn the fact that uh, God can do miracles. After all, getting a great big fish to swallow a man in the middle of a, a su- sudden and unexpected storm is a miracle. Having the fish throw him up on the, on the beach and then having a, a, a bush that we'll look at next week sprout up out of the ground and grow up overnight and, and, and then having a whole city repent and turn at a man's preaching are, are fairly miraculous. But uh, there, there's more that we should be looking for than these kinds of things when we ask the question, what are we learning about God? And one of the things that I would like for us to entertain in as we wrap up Jonah next week will, is this, and that is that God has sent Jonah to a city called Nineveh, which is the capital city of Assyria, which is filled with really, really lousy people. I mean, they're murderers by culture, by background. They have no knowledge or love for the God of Israel. 
their selfish, self-serving, pagan, idol-worshiping kinds of people. And yet, the God of the Bible desires his word to reach those people. And he will get his word to those people any means that he desires to do it, even through a very disobedient man named Jonah who spent the first part of his life, as recorded here, running away from God and running away from what God has told him to do. So we could talk about God's compassion and his mercy, but God is intent on getting his word to the ends of the earth. And that's the promise that he made to Abraham, that through your seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. The second question that we should be asking is, is where am I uh, in, in this picture? Not, not who do I identify with, but how does God's word here walk into our lives? And I hope that we'll have a better understanding of that in just a few minutes. But as I said, Nineveh was a city filled with dirty, rotten, lousy people. Murders and pagans and God's word wanted, or God was confident and was going to get his word to those people no matter what. And, and I thought this week, you know, really and truly, that's me. I'm not a murderer. Don't plan on being one. I don't plan on, you know, taking the life of another individual in a terrible way. But I have been and continue to be as rebellious and as lousy and as rotten a person as anybody that could be found in Nineveh. And I'm really as bad as Jonah, as disobedient, as defiant to God's word, and as prone to run away from God as Jonah was. And so I see myself in this text, and I begin to marvel at the fact that God has chosen to show mercy to me and given me his word to believe in. And that's an extraordinary, extraordinary thing. Last week, as we looked at chapter 2, I pointed out that chapter 1 of Jonah and chapter 3 begin exactly the same way. God calls on Jonah to go to this city and to proclaim God's word to that city. In chapter 1, Jonah said, that, that's not going to happen. He got on a boat and went as far away as he could, or it was least on the journey as far away as he could be. And then the events of chapter 2 took place where he's actually swallowed by the fish and so on. And now we look at chapter 3 that begins the same way. And Jonah goes to the city of Nineveh. And I want to reread verses 1 and 2 for us and, and see what goes on here. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against, against the city the message that I will tell you. Go again to the city. I want you to go. This time I really mean it. Get there. And I want you to give them the message that I will tell you to give them. Now, the phrase in these first two verses that caught my attention 
and, and really bothered me for an hour or two was that great city. Go to Nineveh, that great city. The reason that it bothered me is that that phrase is used multiple times in the entirety of the book. It's quoted in every chapter except for one, and Nineveh is repeatedly called that great city. And so I asked myself, what does it mean when Nineveh is called that great city? We read it in English, and we naturally think it means big, dummy. You know, I mean, I, I, and I wish my little pea brain could just be satisfied with that. When you think of a great city, I don't know what you think of. You know, I mean, I don't think of any city as great. I mean, every last stinking one of them is from the pit of hell as far as I'm concerned. Okay, so why? I really, like, when I come off the hill to Buena Vista, I start to get the shakes, you know. I'm, I'm coming to the city, okay. But you may think of New York or you may think of San Francisco or Los Angeles or Las Vegas or, and see all of those to me, I just like, okay. But anyways, God in his word calls Nineveh that great city. And so I said, well, does it mean size? Well, it, it can it can mean size. Does it mean influential? You see, Nineveh was a city that was built right on the Tigris River of the Tigris and Euphrates fame. And so because of its location, it was on a major central trade route. And so, in fact, it did have tremendous importance economically to not only the country of Assyria, but all the other places around there, and it was wealthy, and it had influence culturally, and all these other things, and so maybe that's part of the reason why it was called that great city. It had, we're told in chapter 4, which we'll look at next week, 120,000 people in the city. Now, by ancient standards, 120,000 people is big beyond our imagining. So maybe just numerically, it was that great city. And then, then, finally, the bonehead preacher looked at the original language. And that great city, in Hebrew, carries with it the idea of a great city to God. Now, wait, wait a minute. Nineveh is a great city to God. Somehow, Nineveh as a city matters to God. Why would a city, regardless of the size, filled with murdering, idolatrous pagans matter to God? And then another question popped into my brain. See, one of the questions that has plagued me throughout my study in the book of Jonah was, why did Jonah hate that city so much that he didn't want to go there? Now, I've answered that in part, and some of the answers that I've given are these. Number one, Jonah, from his own history, knew that 
the Assyrians had come down and conquered Damascus, which was an area very close to where he came from, and he had seen or heard about through his family members the atrocities that the Assyrians had committed. And so he not only had a fear, but a loathing of the Assyrians and the Ninevites as well. And he also had just a natural inborn distaste and dislike for Gentiles as a whole. And he also probably had a personal fear of going to the capital city of Nineveh, knowing their historical past. And, and those are all parts and pieces of the puzzle as to why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. But then when I find out that that great city was a city that mattered to God, and Jonah knew that, it makes his disobedience all the clearer. How can God care about this city? I don't want God to care about this city. I don't want God to care about this city enough that I am going to run away from God and be disobedient in the process. Boy, that sheds a whole new light on the prospect. And we're going to find out why that great city really got under Jonah's skin next week. But anyways, he's called to go to that great city. And an extraordinary thing takes place. Verse 3, Jonah arose and went into Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And I want to stop there and just say, Jonah is now... Not necessarily in heart, but at least in foot and in mouth, obedient to God. He's going where God told him to go, and he is going to say what God told him to say. Okay? So he's on the obedient track. We'll just set his heart aside for the moment, and we'll check out Jonah's heart next week. But according to the word of the Lord, he went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Now, and I just need to point this out because we've got a little bit of time. Um, the the uh, liberal scholars, they go AWOL here. I mean, because, because we know how big geographically Nineveh was. We know where the walls of the city are. And you know what? It's not 60 miles wide at its breadth. And so this is one of the reasons why the liberal scholars say, ha, proof, it's fiction. Except for one small problem. They don't understand Hebrew idiom and customs of the Middle East in the day. When you went as kind of an envoy or an emissary, or an ambassador, which Jonah would have represented from a foreign country, you didn't just hit the city gates and just start walking through the city doing your thing. You had a day of introduction, right? You had a day of introduction where you met the people that you were supposed to meet, and you got a map of the city, and you understood where you were going to go, and that was day one, and then day two was your business, and then day three was the goodbyes, and I could take you to a bunch of places in the Old Testament where goodbyes took a long time. And when I say a long time, I mean multiple days on certain occasions, okay? 
So, so that part of it is misunderstood. The other thing that could have happened was that Jonah, when he preached, went through every city in the street. Okay, and, and so the, po- the point of the matter is it, it doesn't matter that Nineveh wasn't 60 miles wide. His journey in the original was a three-day journey, whatever took place in that three days, as you see. And he began to preach in verse 4. And this is really where the stake is served in, in the text. There's two parts to the stake. The first part's here in verse 4 and 5, and the next part comes in verse 9. But, but verse 4, it says, And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And, and here's his sermon. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And, and I want to tell you this, and I want it to shock you. That is great news. That is a good sermon. In Hebrew, it's five words. Five words. Okay? And, and I have reason to believe that it was the full content of Jonah's sermon. And I'll tell you why I think that. And, and it's okay if I get burned at the stake as a heretic. Um, because the brevity of it leads me to believe, because we have so many other sermons in the prophetic literature, that the whole sermon was completed and there, and it's very long, and it's page after page, you know. Here we just get five words, and why would it be so abbreved when we... Abbreved, that's probably not a word, is it? I just make it up as I need it. It doesn't matter, okay. The reason that I think it was so brief was because God told him, I'm going to give you the message, and and he did according to the word of the Lord. And so here the sermon is recorded for us in all of its brevity, five five words, yet in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Now let me tell you why that is good news and why I think it's good news. Because normally we wouldn't think that the message of judgment is good. What Jonah was saying was judgment is delayed. There is 40 days. There's 40 days. God is not standing at the gate with his sword. He's not with his angels in the sky of the heaven ready to rain down brimstone and fire on this city. Forty days and God is going to destroy this city. The message of delayed judgment is a good message. The message of judgment is just, it is right, It is pure and it is holy. And if there was ever a city that deserved judgment, it was Nineveh. Just like the people in this room deserve judgment, including myself. But there's a delay of 40 days. And this is the response of the people. And the people of Nineveh believed God, not just a God, God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. 
And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Now, I've got to tell you, this is just remarkable. If I were an evangelist, if I were a preacher, which I'm both, but if I was in that context... I, I mean, happy is not the word at my response. I would be in awe that God's words so succinct and so clear about delayed judgment would bring about that kind of response in a pagan people. I would be astounded. This really should be taken note of. The power of the word of God spoken cannot be overestimated. Five words brought a city to its knees. Brought a king of absolute extraordinary proportions to his knees. And it came from the lips of a man whose heart was not in it. God's word does not need, praise God, a great deliverer of his message. It just needs to be God's word. It doesn't hurt if the guy can speak and be articulate and the heart is with it. But God's word is where the power is. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. And I think that is another reason why the brevity of the message is shown the way it is. Because the power of God's word needs to be seen, not only by Jonah, but by you and by me and the people of Nineveh and all the rest of it. God's judgment is delayed, but it is coming. And the king of Nineveh heard about it, and he repented, and he issued, verse 7, a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. And this is what the, the announcement said. By the decree of the king and his nobles... Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Again, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence which is in his hands. Now, I mean... I don't want to paint a silly picture because I don't, this is not silly. The king says, I want you to cover the animals in sackcloth. I want you to keep the animals from drinking water. And I don't want you to eat or drink anything. Now, historically, in the Middle East, a fast would have been from sunrise to sunset. We're not talking days or weeks, but nonetheless, it was symbolic of an extraordinary 
sense of repentance. And the king is sitting in ashes as he writes this. It's just the most extraordinary revival ever written about to anybody, let alone a pagan, terrible, filthy person like me, you know. And so we would expect that his pronouncement would end. And then we get to the last part of the stake. This is the fillet. Verse 9. The king is still speaking, and he's speaking in his announcement, his edict, and this is what he says. And listen carefully. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Who knows? Now, why is that so important? The king did not presume that because he put on sackcloth and ashes and had the nation do the same, God owes me. I've done my bit. Look at my contrite heart, O God. I've earned your favor. You must turn your judgment from me. He said, who knows? One God might relent. Now that word relent, I want to just comment on briefly because it translates so badly from Hebrew to English. Some of the older versions say God repented. That's a bad translation. Let me explain why. Because repentance means to turn from that which is evil to turn to that which is good. You see, the options, so to speak, and that's not a bad, or that's not a good word either. The, the options for God were judgment, which were just and right and correct and honorable, and mercy, which is on the same level, you see. It's, it's a choice, if you will, between two holy things, not that which is bad and that which is good. So relent is as close as we get, you know. Uh, and Instead of changing his mind, he, he relented. And the king cries out and says, God may relent of this disaster, and his turn is fierce anger from us so that we may not perish. He didn't presume. You see, the depth of maturity in this repentance is pretty extraordinary. The people didn't assume God owed them anything. They desired the mercy of God, but... But they didn't. But see, this idea that we see here in Nineveh it is not new in the Bible. As a matter of fact, it comes up all kinds of different places. It comes up a boatload of places. It comes up in the book of Joel that we'll look at here in a few weeks. And in the book of Joel, the prophet Joel is speaking to the people of God, not a pagan nation. It's a big difference, you see. He's speaking to the people of God, not a bunch of... of uh, baby-slaying idolaters in, in a foreign land. And I just want to read you three verses from Joel chapter 2. And I think Joel is probably quoting 
from Jonah here, but he's speaking to the people of God. He says, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. We love that verse, don't we? We quote it a lot from Joel. But then we, we miss this part, verse 14. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? Who knows? Judgment is our due. Whether you're a pagan from a foreign land or whether you're a member of the people of God. Judgment is righteous. It is holy. It is our due. Who knows? God may relent and show mercy. And he did to the people of Nineveh, which is all the more extraordinary. All the more extraordinary. And that generation of pagan people who repented were shown mercy by the delayed judgment of God. Now we've got to do five minutes in the New Testament. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, and then we'll be done. But Matthew chapter 12, this is one of the occasions where Jesus quotes from the book of Jonah. And the setting is that Jesus is having a conversation with the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes. And they're always trying to put Jesus on the spot and make him look bad and so on and so forth and make him jump through all kinds of different hoops. But we're going to understand now what the sign of Jonah is and why he quotes Jonah. Beginning at verse 38, it says, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Do something miraculous. Do something great. They don't say they'll believe, but we're here for the show. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And I'll stop there for a moment. Jesus very clearly is making a comparison between Jonah's time in the great fish and Jesus' time in the grave. Jonah came out of the great fish. Jesus is going to come out of the grave. Jesus is going to be resurrected from the dead. Now, you have all heard me say this. What is the significance of the resurrection? I have said, and I am correct, when I say that the sign of the resurrection is that God the Father accepted the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus as acceptable payment for our sin, and his resurrection is proof of that. It is also a demonstration that Christ has power over death. And it is also proof that there is life after death 
which means final judgment is yet to come. Judgment is delayed. And judgment, final judgment, has been delayed since the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jonah's day, it was 40 days. For us thus far, it has been 2,000. Now, we might die today and face judgment. But in terms of the great grand scheme of things like the city of Nineveh and all of mankind, judgment has been delayed and the resurrection is proof that judgment is delayed. Am I making sense? Don't believe me if you don't see it. This is not smoke and mirrors. So what Jesus is saying to the religious establishment is I, like Jonah, am going to come out of the grave once again alive And judgment is delayed. What are you going to do with it now? And look at the last verse, verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the, repeat, at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What was Jonah's message? 40 days, God is going to destroy. What was Jesus' message? You know who preached judgment more than anybody else in the Bible? The Lord Jesus Christ. That was his message. Judgment is coming. It is delayed. But for this generation, these people who are trying to put Jesus on the spot the people of that generation in Jonah's day from the pagan city of Nineveh are going to stand in judgment over you because they repented and they relented because of delayed judgment. And you are not. That's the sign of Jonah. That judgment is delayed because of the resurrected Christ. So where does that leave us? Well, I, there's all kinds of people in the world. There's some that will say, I'll wait till the last minute. <laughs> I have no idea what God's timeline is. There's some of us who and I'm not being critical, who I will delay my conversation with my loved one and my friend, my neighbor, my family member about the gospel because there's time, because judgment is delayed. I don't know. What I do know is that for this second, judgment is delayed, but judgment is coming because of the resurrection. And I do know that the reason we're around is because we have been grafted in and we have been called to share God's word with the nations of the earth. And he's going to get it done. 
He's going to get it done. And what I know is the deep, rich mercy of God who delayed judgment so that we could hear his word and be brought into his family. What an extraordinary, extraordinary reality. Let me pray. Father in heaven, your word is, um, rich is not the right word because it's so inadequate. It teaches, it reproves, it corrects, it trains, it convicts, it brings joy. And your word will accomplish your goal despite the efforts of mankind. And for that, we praise you. Help us to be good, willing mouthpieces for your word to this world. And if we don't yet have a relationship with you through Christ, help us contemplate the reality that judgment is not delayed forever. And who knows, you may relent and show mercy. To the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.